We are uh, continuing our series, I Deserve It, that we started last week on Easter Sunday. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at four stories from Scripture where someone deserved one thing but got another, and then how those stories apply to our lives today. Last week, we looked at the two criminals who were crucified uh, next to Jesus and the idea that, that I deserve death, but he gave me life. And this week, we're going to look at the story commonly known as the story of the woman caught in adultery and the, the idea that I deserve condemnation, but he gave me mercy. Now, condemnation and mercy are words we actually don't use a lot um, in everyday language, but to break it down right up front here, condemnation, the idea of being condemned, is to be declared to be reprehensible, wrong, or evil, usually after hearing evidence, and without reservation. If you want to make that a little more clear, to be pronounced guilty. Condemnation is the idea of being pronounced guilty. Mercy, on the other hand, is compassion shown to an offender. And so based on definition alone, you can see a pretty strong contrast between mercy and condemnation. That if we deserve condemnation, if we deserve to be declared wrong or evil, and we deserve to face whatever punishment comes after that, and instead we're shown compassion, understanding that would bring about an amazing feeling of gratitude toward the one who shows that compassion, who shows that mercy. And some might see mercy as being let off the hook, but I don't think that's the idea here. You know, if you're let off the hook, you don't receive the consequences that you deserve. You really don't even have to acknowledge that there should have been consequences. But to me, the, the idea of mercy means not only do you not receive the consequences that you deserve, but you're fully aware of them and even acknowledge that you probably deserve them. It's more of a gift than a free pass. And that's what our story is about today. Um, we've actually done quite a bit of hand-raising over the past several weeks where I asked you to admit, and cer- admit certain things, so we're not going to do that today. But I'm going to assume that at some point, each of you, each of us, we've been caught doing something wrong. And we won't dig into the moral question of it's not speeding if you don't get caught and other statements like that that people make. Like, well, it has, unless, I get caught, I'm, unless I get caught, I'm okay. Because I think we've all justified one questionable action or another through an idea like that. We say, well, it wasn't a big deal. Or it, wasn't, you know, it would have only mattered if it affected somebody or if I got caught. But I think that we can admit that doing something wrong feels different once you get caught. It's a different feeling of guilt. And nobody likes being caught. As a kid, you probably had some sort of moment where your mom or dad said, were you eating candy when you weren't supposed to be? And you said, of course not, but you had chocolate everywhere, so it was obvious. And thinking up through your years, you could probably think of quite a few examples, some minor, some major, where you got caught doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. We don't like feeling guilty. It's not something we seek out. And I'd say even worse than that, we don't like feeling guilty and having to look the person who caught us in the eye. And so our story from God's Word today, it's just kind of a crazy story because that's basically what happens. It's one of those stories that if it wasn't in the Bible, you might guess that somebody made it up just to make a point. Like it's one of those stories where you have to remind yourself this actually happened. And the truth is that the the, the basic bones of this story, it probably wasn't all that uncommon back then. 
So we're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 8. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen. But it begins like this in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. The crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, this was not uncommon at all. As we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, where Jesus went, crowds soon gathered, and where crowds gathered, Jesus would teach. And in most cases, these weren't 30-minute lectures. Some of you are hoping very much I keep it under 30 today. These would go on, often for hours, even most of the day. There are several stories in Scripture where we see people starting to get hungry and starting to be like, hey, can we wind this down? And Jesus is still teaching. He would teach long enough that word would spread that he was nearby, and other people would come. People would come from farther and farther away because word was spreading that Jesus was here and he was teaching. And apparently in this case, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, heard that Jesus was here and that he was teaching. And they saw it as an opportunity. You see, they weren't huge fans of Jesus, and they'd been looking for a way to catch Jesus doing something wrong, but if you know anything about Jesus, they weren't going to catch him doing something wrong. So they had realized they were going to need to trap him. They were going to need to trip him up in some way. They just hadn't figured out a way to do it successfully until now, or so they thought. In verse 3, as he was speaking, as Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. And to me, this is where the story gets a little bit ridiculous. They caught her in the act of adultery and brought her in front of this crowd, and we don't know if they gave her time to get dressed or anything, but there is absolutely no doubt that, that whatever the details, she was embarrassed beyond understanding. And the truth is, I'm guessing the crowd was a bit embarrassed too, because here they are just trying to listen to Jesus teach, and the Pharisees bust in and throw this woman in front of them. It's not something they probably saw every day when listening to Jesus teach. Now the truth is, it usually takes two people to commit adultery, so there is a definite double standard here in bringing the woman in front of Jesus in the crowd. That There's literally no mention of the man from any kind of angle that, that he was in fact wrong too, just her. And so she's embarrassed, and on top of that, she is in fact guilty. And in the moment, she fully understands what voices of condemnation sound like. And those voices say things like, your life is ruined. You're never going to live this down. No one could ever love you after what you did. Or, oh, and, and you call yourself a, a good person? Or maybe the voice says, oh, you call yourself a, a God person. You've heard these voices before. They say things like, you're supposed to be a Christian, but after what you did, God, God can never use you. I'm not even sure God loves you anymore. You're pathetic. You're You're nothing. And when the voices of condemnation speak, they tend to pile on. And they tend to know where you're weakest, and they tend to attack there. Those voices of condemnation, they speak before you get caught. They speak after. The truth is, feelings of shame and guilt, they're not reserved for those who get caught. And so in my opinion, there's no doubt that those voices of condemnation and guilt and shame are probably louder than they've been, but they've been in her ears for a long time. And to make things worse for this particular woman, I'm quite sure 
that she was aware that in Jewish culture, this was one of the worst sins that she could commit. It didn't get much worse. The voices of condemnation almost certainly told her, well, your, your life's basically over. But, but the truth was, it was actually likely that her life really was about to be over. Verse 4, the Pharisees talked to Jesus. They said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were right. <laughs> this is what the law of Moses said to do in this situation. And again, she was probably well aware of that fact. She probably knew exactly what the law of Moses said needed to happen to her. Stoner, killer. This crime is punishable by death. But it quickly becomes clear that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they weren't really all that focused on what she had done or who she was, or even the question of whether she actually deserved death or not. They were focused on Jesus more than this woman. They were looking for leverage. They were looking to use this woman and her situation to trap and to trick Jesus. And it wasn't a dumb plan. Listen, I'm not, not going to beat around the bush here and act like they were stupid. This was a smart plan. In a world where Jesus isn't going to commit sins, this is a pretty good plan to try to trip him up. It was pretty smart. They probably believed they had Jesus in a no-win situation, and for the most part, they did. Because here's the thing. If Jesus says, yeah, that's what the law says, go ahead and stone her, then everything he has ever taught about love and mercy goes out the window. And Jesus loses all credibility with those who are following him. If he says, go ahead and stone her, because that's what the law says, he loses his credibility. But on the other hand, if he says, no, let's not overreact here, let's just forgive her, then they could flip it on him and say, well, Jesus is condoning adultery. He says it's okay to break the law of Moses. And again, in the long run, that hurts Jesus. And in that, they could turn around and they could say, well, now you have to throw out all of his teaching because he's telling us to ignore the law of Moses. So clearly, this Jesus is a false teacher. What they were doing here was so obvious, and yet it seemed like a pretty good plan. They'd been looking for a way to trip up Jesus for some time now. Scripture is very clear about that. And now it seemed that they were going to succeed. They had him right where they wanted him. They had every base covered, they thought. It even says in verse 6, it says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. It was so clear. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger, and that seems like a really strange thing. It wasn't the first time that someone had tried to trip Jesus up. He really did always seem to be prepared for it. And so they asked if they should stone her like the law says, and he doesn't respond verbally, at least. He bends down and he writes in the dirt. Which does seem strange, but it's Jesus, so we can probably trust that on some level he knew what he was doing. We aren't sure what he wrote, and I really want to know this. I say this every time I talk about this story. I want to know what he wrote. There are a lot of scholars that honestly believe what he did was he bent down and he started listing the sins of all of the religious leaders and Pharisees there. And he started writing down their specific sins. Now, I hope that that's true because that's hilarious that that's what he did. 
I'm going to ask, ask that in heaven someday because I really want to know. And if that was the case, or if that wasn't, I imagine that it would be effective in disarming the situation. Again, whatever he wrote, it led to this moment in verse 7. It says, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said this, all right, but let the one of you who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he got back down and wrote in the dust again. Now, I think if I have a few extra hours someday, I'll read through the Gospels and make a list of all the times that Jesus could have dropped the mic. Because this is one of those situations where he says, all right, this is fine, but if you haven't sinned, go ahead and kill her. And I think he could have just walked away there and it would have been, that would have been it. All the times that Jesus said something that just, that there's nothing that could be said in response. There are a lot of these moments. It's just that good. Jesus found really the only way to beat this trap that they set for him. They thought he only had two possible responses, stoner or let her off the hook. And yet he finds the sweet spot. Jesus basically says, if you want to hold to the law of Moses, hold to it in your own life too. And if you have, if you've held to it, feel free to grab a rock. In verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. See, Jesus made his point. Whatever he wrote, plus what he said, plus whatever was now going through the minds of the accusers resulted in them slipping away. And I don't know if there's any significance to the oldest one leaving first, but it's almost like you can picture their minds working. Oh, I see where this is going. I'm going to get out of here before this gets worse. And maybe the younger ones don't realize as quickly how much Jesus nailed this and how, how much this was just over. But eventually they realize he's got them beat and they all walk away. And all that remains in the middle of the crowd of people is Jesus and this broken woman. They're, I think sometimes we read this story and we're tempted to believe that everybody leaves. The truth is the crowd watched this whole thing and they were still there. Here in the middle of this crowd is Jesus and this broken woman who, who, remember, probably honestly believed that she was about to die and that that was fair. She was being accused of a sin punishable by death and there was nothing but proof that she was guilty. And yet this Jesus, who she was thrown in front of, gets rid of her accusers and he looks at her and he says these life-changing words to her in verse 10. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Again, we have to remember, this woman was guilty without a doubt. She deserved condemnation. She, she was sinful. She was wrong. But because of the grace and love of Jesus, he didn't give her what she, in fact, deserved. But he gave her mercy. And the truth is, because we all have sin, we're all guilty. But Romans 8, 1, these words speak so much to us in the midst of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You, you could rephrase that and you could say, so now there is no condemnation for those who deserve condemnation, but belong to Christ Jesus. I think so often... 
We let ourselves off the hook. We say, ah, it's not that big a deal. I don't struggle as much as the next guy. Now there is no condemnation for those who still deserve condemnation, but are in Christ Jesus. She deserved condemnation and she received mercy, and the same is true for us, absolutely. Those voices of condemnation that the woman heard, they speak to us from time to time. They speak loudly. They speak directly to what we're dealing with. And a lot of times those voices have a lot of power in our lives if we let them. They have the power to make us feel like we are in fact condemned. But listen clearly. And I think Jesus would say something like this to the woman. You are not what you did. You are not what you've done. That doesn't define who you are. You are not who voices of condemnation would say that you are. You are not who other people would say that you are. And so often those voices and other people and our past, we give it too much power. And we let those things define who we are. You're not what you did. You're not who those voices say you are. You're not who other people might say that you are. You are who Jesus says you are. And Jesus says if you're in Christ, you're forgiven, you're free. That you're an overcomer by the power of his blood. You aren't your past. So often let our past define us. You, You aren't what someone else did to you. Sometimes that defines us. You are not what you did, even if it was wrong, because now there is no condemnation for those who, despite the fact that they deserve condemnation, are in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing about our story. Jesus doesn't stop at forgiveness here. Now, he absolutely tells her that she's forgiven. He does say that. He says he doesn't condemn her, but then he also says, go and sin no more. And we might read that and say, oh, he's saying you're forgiven, now behave. That's a lot of times how we read that. I remember as a kid, and this was always one of those stories, by the way, in Sunday school, that you kind of had to dance around the details of what was actually happening. I think back to like growing up in Sunday school, I'm like, they probably should have skipped some of these stories when we were little. But I remember the idea was, okay, now we've learned, we just need to stop sinning. And we say, you know, you're forgiven, now behave. But I think you can just as much read what Jesus says to her here as, you're forgiven, you're free, therefore you don't have to go back to that life. That bondage, that sin. It's no longer in charge of your life because you're free. Now, now does he mean go and behave? I mean, yeah, on some level. I think Jesus probably means go and sin no more. But he's also saying, go and no longer be enslaved to that sin. No longer let that lead your life. It's amazing what the presence of Jesus can do in a life. This this encounter was forced. She didn't seek out Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus himself sought Jesus. He went looking for Jesus. This woman was not looking for Jesus. This was a forced encounter. She was thrown in front of him. And it changed her life for the better, because she was lost, and she may not even realize she was lost, but now she was found and free. And the very next verse, after kind of the the conclusion of this story with her, in verse 12 of chapter 8 of John, it says this, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. 
If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, the truth is that's one of the most well-known statements that Jesus says as recorded in Scripture. I am the light of the world. That's extremely well-known. But if I read John chapter 8 correctly, he says that in light of what they just saw. You know, when, when, when the Bible was put together, well-meaning people came through and added chapter and verse divisions so that it was easier for us to get where we needed to go in Scripture. And on top of that, well-meaning people came by and they, they put in headings to help divide up the stories. And I think this one's in the wrong place. In most versions, there is a break between verse 11 and 12, but to me, This says, Jesus turned back to the people. And he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And what better example than what those people just saw with this woman. When Jesus looked at her and and said, where are your condemners? then I don't condemn you either. When, when he said those words to her, at that moment, Jesus was not just the light of the world, he became the light of her world. And her world was a dark place. And the truth is, we don't get to hear the rest of her story. And that's unfortunate. I hope that she went and sinned no more. I hope that she went and embraced that freedom. I do. But if you've tried to walk in the light instead of the darkness, you know it's not always that easy. And the voices of condemnation creep back in. And there's no doubt in my mind that that happened with her, that those voices tried to creep back in. But if you've met Jesus, and I mean really met Jesus, I believe that in those moments, his voice can speak louder than those voices of condemnation. I believe this woman, I believe she never forgot those words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Honestly, I think that's what Jesus would say to us today in in the face of our sins, in the face of our struggles. I think he'd tell us to go and sin no more, to stop letting those things lead our lives. Whether it's sin or whether it's worry or anxiety or whether it's our past hanging over our head or whether it's some relationship that's not healthy, whatever it is that's leading our lives that's not Jesus, I think he would say, be free. Go and sin no more. Follow me. Don't walk in darkness any longer. You know, John 3.17, the verse that immediately follows the one that we, we so often say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But 17 is so important because it says this, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn. And in each and every one of our lives, and in the lives of everyone who's ever lived, there would be plenty to condemn us for. But that's not why he came. He could have come to condemn because he knows all of those sins and struggles in us. But that's not why he came. Here's the bottom line. Jesus came to save us 
in spite of our sin. And to me, that's the definition of mercy. That in spite of what we actually deserve, that in spite of the sin in us, that God still made a way for us to be saved, for us to not get what we deserve. That's the definition of mercy, and I believe that's the definition of love. There is no greater mercy and there is no greater love than that. Let's pray. Father God, we are, we are thankful the writers of Scripture who felt stories like this were important to record. We're thankful that they have been passed down so that we today can still learn from them. God, I believe that that in each one of these stories that we go through in this series, I believe that we'll be able to find ourselves in them. When we do that, I pray that you you would move in us, that you would challenge us. God, some of us struggle with the belief that we deserve to be condemned for what we've done. We just have to wake up and realize you've set us free. Some of us have realized that but are still stuck in those sins and those struggles and worry and anxiety and whatever it is that ties us up. I pray that you would help us to see that freedom is right there for us. Help us know that through you we're not condemned, but we are given the greatest measure of mercy imaginable. God, as we move into this time of communion, I pray that our focus would be on that gift on the cross, how you made a way for us to come back to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.